Well, good morning, Bel Air. Boy, joy to be with you on this Sunday. Just want to quickly, as we look back to last week, thank you for your prayers. I shared uh, last week, if you were here with us, uh, I had some medical stuff going on with my leg. I couldn't lift the, the front foot, uh, front of my foot off the ground. And uh, thanks to your prayers, uh, first and foremost, thanks, for God, thanks to God, who is the great physician. Uh, and thanks to, uh, you know, and side note, I now have recommendations uh, from you of every single medical field in human history now. Literally, I'll, they're all, I have this Rolodex of, of who has healed you, so thank you for that. It, it's been so phenomenal. Uh, I went to a neurologist earlier this week, and he, he simply thinks that it's a, a compressed peroneal nerve, which has caused um, some of the issues that I have, the, the, the paralyzation in the front of my, my leg. And he says, uh, uh, with some PT, and I'll add, and, and with some prayer, uh, I'll be back within the next month, he says to uh, praise the Lord. So you, some of you are asking, uh, are you dancing yet? Yes, not, not, I'm dancing, but not, not gracefully, as always. Uh, but also looking back to last week, uh, you might have recalled that at the beginning of the service last week, I, I put a little orange uh, thing up in the air. I'll do it again, a little orange thing up in the air. Uh, opportunity. It's in your bulletins, actually, for you to serve in our kids' ministry. This is our elementary age ministry, and our goal was to have uh, 50 individuals say, in this season, I want to serve, I want to volunteer, I want to come alongside that ministry. Uh, and going into this morning, we had 41 people respond, so more than 80% there. I don't know how the 8.30 service went yet, but we can go past that 50 number. So pray about it, consider it, an opportunity for you to, to play an indispensable part in this church family. You know, we're wrapping up uh, a sermon series on what is the church for. What are we about? You know, in a world that often uh, looks at the church and knows what the church is against, sadly, uh, we need to talk about, you know, what are we for? What are we passionate about? Uh, what's our heartbeat, so to speak? But it's not just what we're for. Uh, it's also kind of this question of, like, what's, what's the church for? You know, because we've outsourced in many ways, the role and the responsibilities of the church to many other organizations, so much so that there are certain organizations that are doing things better than the church. There are certain uh, educational systems that are doing things better than the church. In many ways, we've kind of abdicated our role as the church, sadly, and in many ways to a world that's broken and hurting, they don't look at the church as being the answer anymore. They look to other programs and things and other organizations and nonprofits and uh, governmental initiatives. But from God's point of view, God says, no, the church is the most powerful force in the cosmos when it's the church that God sends, when it's a church empowered by the Holy Spirit, when it's a church that is Christ at the center, when it's a church that glorifies God. And so as we've been talking about each of these weeks, if you recall in the first week I talked about how the church is for being shaken by the right thing. And I talked about how in worship when we gather in God's presence that it, it should shake us. It should cause us to look off of ourselves. It's so easy to get self-absorbed in a way where we are overwhelmed with God's holiness and beauty and, 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 and perfection in such a way that it shakes the bitterness the doubt, the fear away from us. And really, it should send us out in the world bold and courageous so no longer are we shaken by things that used to shake us. You see, when you're shaken by God, an ironic thing happens. 
you're not moved by anything else. That when you live a life of worship, when you get news like this, when you lose your job, when a loved one leaves you, uh, when the stock market crashes, when things that normally would shake you to the core cause you to be filled with fear and overwhelmed by it, when you live a life of worship and you are shaken by Him, and as we gather as the church, we become an unshakable force out in the world. But second, last week I talked about how as Alan reminded us earlier, that, that God is a God that experiences homelessness, that God is longing for a home, and that we found in Jesus, God was fully pleased to dwell in Jesus. And now the church, which is the embodiment of Jesus, it's not a metaphor that we're the body of Christ. We are literally the body of Christ. We are the household of God, Scripture says, that God longs to dwell with us, to reside in us, and as I said last week in 1 Peter, it says that each of us are like living stones built together to be a household for God. That God's longing to be at home is found in you. So would we as a church receive Him, welcome Him, to be the kind of church where God finds God's self most at home. But, you know, it moves us into this third topic. That yes, we're talking about learning, you know, who God is and learning from Jesus and being with God and being God's household. But, you know, it comes to a point of action. It's, it comes to a point of, of doing. And in a moment, we're going to get into kind of the foundation for what the church is for. But two of the great ends of the church that we talk about within our Presbyterian denomination are this. First, it's the, the preservation of truth. And second, the promotion of social righteousness. Uh, or social justice. Now, that, that topic of justice is an interesting topic, and we're going to get a little bit deeper in today. In fact, as you often hear me say at the beginning of services, I say, you know, we join churches around the city and around the globe and around the, uh, everywhere, lift up the name of Jesus higher than any other name. And the reason why I say that is because I want us to enlarge our view beyond ourselves, that there is a church that is bigger than this church, that yes, we are a local expression, but we are part of a global and, and actually a historical church. And today, on this Sunday in September, there are over 2,700 other churches in 16 different countries across six different languages that are talking about a topic that I'm going to address today. And the topic is human trafficking. The topic is modern-day slavery. And there's an organization that is actually the largest organization in the world that is doing the greatest work to combat slavery, to undo human trafficking. It happens to be a Christian organization. How many of you have heard of International Justice Mission? There's hands shooting right up. Now, now, this is not a formal partner of our church, but we have a great relationship with IJM. In fact, Gary Haugen, uh, the president of IJM, has preached here twice. Last year, we had uh, Jocelyn White preach. And just to kind of set the tone and how this is actually what the church has to be for, which we'll get to in a moment, do you have any idea that right now in this world there are 45 million people 45 million people caught up in slavery. And it takes many different forms, and it's extremely complicated. It generates $150 billion a year. It's the second largest revenue for criminal activity in the world. Did you know that Los Angeles, this city that we live in, is a hub for human trafficking? 
in many of its different forms. And since IJM was founded 20 years ago, the work that they are doing globally, listen to this, they have rescued over 40,000 people from slavery. A Christian organization that, that governments are actually going to and saying, we want to learn from you. How are you doing this? Because we've got this issue in all these cities and all these provinces and all these townships throughout the world. We're coming to you, Christians. How are you doing this? Over that 20-year stretch, they've obtained 1,300 convictions. They've changed the dynamic in such a way that they've estimated that 21, 21 million people have not gone into slavery. 21 million people. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's astronomical. Now, last year when Jocelyn White preached, uh, 20 of you, you signed up to be Freedom Partners uh, to send money to IJM. You know, they're, they're doing the frontline work, by the way. Uh, they're in the courthouses. Uh, they're doing rescue missions. Uh, they're equipping government officials. They're doing tremendous frontline work. And 20 of you, you became Freedom Partners. And just last year, Almost 6,000 people were rescued just last year. Uh, over 266 violent criminals were uh, detained. And 30,000 civil servants. So these are judges. These are social workers. These are uh, fire and, and police. Were trained to learn how to identify and report human trafficking. Now, I, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine just a, a massive river, massive river, flowing pretty quickly with very, very steep embankments. So steep that you get close enough that you, you slip right in. So steep that it's actually, it's too steep for you to crawl out. And, and this rushing water, it just, it, it gains in intensity, it gains in force. Uh, so much rapids that it almost becomes just, all you can see is just white water to the point of just this, this massive waterfall. And 45 million people are caught up in this right now. And while on one hand, IJM is doing work to, to pull people out of that, you've got to know that it's very, very complicated. And just to take a step back for a moment, if you were to go further upstream to kind of some of the, the demographics and the sources and the reasons why people fall into human trafficking, you quickly learn to discover that people that are caught up in, in homelessness, runaways, people aging out of the foster care system, uh, people who are recovering from, from addiction. This is, the, this is kind of the, the demographics that are, that are most likely to fall into this great, massive, rushing river. But, it, but it's more complicated than that because when you look around the globe and you look at the work that we're doing in the Congo, there are things that are in dynamics being played out in the Congo that, that, that the church is on the front lines of combating human trafficking. So the orphanage that's starting up there and the work that's been done there for many, many years is on the front lines of this. And you go to Egypt and you, and you look at the partnership that we have there. They're on the front lines of some of these amazing things that, that we're going to get deeper into in a moment. You know, we have these global partners around the world, but we also have local partners. When we talk about Hope Gardens, the Ann Douglas Center, uh, when we talk about these Things like what used to be called child share, which is now foster all. This is kind of a further upstream way in which we as a church are coming alongside partners. It, it's the revival and renewal. 
You know, we talk about this. We long to be a church where people, neighborhoods, and cities are revived and renewed by Jesus. And there's a stat that I just heard recently that just in Los Angeles, that when it comes to a subset of human trafficking, sex trafficking, uh, that 89% of those in Los Angeles caught up in that have aged out of our foster care system, our foster care system. Do you have any idea that if just half of 1% of all the Christians in the U.S. fostered a child, there'd be no more foster kids? Now, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to, like, uh, put my thumb on the guilt in your life. I don't want to shame you into this. I don't want to, I don't want to push in that way. I could. Many people do. But let's, let's first take a step back, and let's go to God's Word, and let's uncover what does God say the church is for, and how can we actually be part of this great revival, this great renewal in ways that nothing else can come close to. Open up your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 1. Uh, it's on page 862 in your pew Bible. And that pew Bible is a red book. If you didn't bring one, uh, take that home with you. I'd rather you have it than it's sitting here all week. If you're joining us online, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And this is a long section. Every word is, is just filled with meaning and power. Let me read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. John writes, inspired by the Spirit, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. All right, so let me, again, I, I've taken a step back. We'll get back to human trafficking in a moment, but, but there's, a, there's a starting point. There's a foundation that we have to build. What is the church for? And as I said earlier, that two of the great ends of the church in our denomination that we, that we talk about, one is the preservation of the truth. Now, let me just stop right here. Uh, because it's easy to talk about truth as a weapon uh, or truth as uh, a defense. You know, and, it, and kind of what Christians are known for, and maybe some of you are listening online or you're here and you're kind of searching or exploring or you're suspicious of Christianity, there's this kind of rap, and sometimes for good reason, sadly, 
that Christians are all about, I've got the truth, and you don't. Uh, And it's a way to distance. It can actually be used as a way to do the very opposite of what God says that we're for. You see, when I talk about the preservation of truth, I'm not talking about holding on to this weapon or having the right walls around your life. Uh, I'm not trying to talk about it as just an intellectual exercise. Uh, What I'm not talking about is this preservation of the truth is this thing that we keep and that we hold and that we have and that we have this knowledge and good for us and and, and we are right with God because we have the truth, this, this set of beliefs, this set of knowledge. I want you to write down this definition. You actually find this in John 17, a, a prayer that Jesus prays. But let me, let me write down this definition. Let me, I ask you to write down this definition. Some of you have amazing memories, so apparently you don't have any to write. But uh, you could uh, bring a notebook and a, a pen and take notes. But some of you, you, do, you have better memories than I do. You tell me things that I preached on years ago. I did. A Christian is a Christian because she or he has a certain relationship to the truth that is Jesus. Let me say it again. A Christian is a Christian because she or he has a certain relationship to the truth that is Jesus. I'm going to cut to the chase. The truth is a person. And the truth's name is Jesus. That's what that whole section of John chapter 1 was. In fact, John, he could use infinite number of words to describe Jesus. And he says that he came and he was full of both grace, which we'll get to in a moment, and truth. Jesus says about himself. He doesn't say, I know the truth. He says, I am the truth. And in the longest prayer that Jesus prayed that's recorded in Scripture in John 17, he says three things. He's referring to Christians as people who believe his words. He refers to Christians as those who believe that Jesus is from God. And three, he refers to Christians as those that believe also, he were there, also, that God sent Jesus. To be a Christian means that you have a a certain relationship to the truth that is Jesus. At the very core of what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, is that you have a relationship with the truest thing in the cosmos. And this isn't just about an intellectual exercise, though it does engage your mind, your heart, your entire being. When Jesus says, you know, Christians are those that believe my words, he's referencing his teaching. And his teachings were drawn from the Hebrew Scriptures, which we'll get deeper into in a moment. This body of teaching that ultimately became the New Testament. You see, when we gather as a church... On Sundays, when we worship and grow, or some of you who come to the 11 o'clock service, who you grow and you worship, the reason why we open up God's Word and the reason why we have that time in between our worship services is because we long for you to grow 
in the truth of who Jesus is. And right now, the workshops that we have are things that we want you to learn from Jesus, how you can be like Jesus, and, and how you can do the things that Jesus has called you to. And Jesus says, a Christian is somebody that believes my words. But it's more than that. He says, it's people that believe, Jesus says, that I'm from God. That this isn't just a great teacher. He's not just a human being. That This is God in the flesh, perfect, divine, loving, gracious, full of grace, full of truth. But then John records Jesus praying, but also the God you sent me. Now, the word sent is the word missio. Let me hear you say missio. That's where we get the word mission from. Do you have any idea that God is on a mission? That God took the initiative to send Jesus to us? You see, Jesus didn't just show up and respond to need. God sent Jesus to us out of the comforts of heaven. Jesus came, ready for this, not only to tell you what to do, he came to do it for you. See, it is, it is a, um, a ripping out of the gospel if you think that Jesus came just to tell you how to live. Yes, he did that, but he also said, you know what? You can't do it on yourself. You can't do it on your own. And in fact, he actually did the things on our behalf. In John 10, 10, it says, I've come to give you life and life abundant. Here's the gospel. The gospel is not that you live a perfect life and then give it to God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that God came to us to live a perfect life, to give it to us. There is a, a world of a difference between those two things. Some of you are here today, and some of you think that, oh, if I... If I uh, give towards an organization, or if I give to church, or if I volunteer in these areas, that's how I can kind of live a good life and then give it to God. And I'm telling you, you will end up frustrated. You will end up just doing the minimum. You will end up being bitter. You will end up doing things demanding that God owes you. But if you realize that God came to do it all for you, to live the perfect life for you, so that you would be found righteous and approved and loved in God's sight, then all that you do is now in response to that great love. You see, there's a phrase that's going around, you know, and I see it on bumper stickers, I see it uh, on social media, I, I, you know, I see it everywhere, and it, it's this. Uh, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's how you live. Which on the surface, you might say, well, yeah, I mean... Gosh, we got to live in a certain, I mean, you got you to gotta, you gotta bless people, right? You got to do good, and right? You got to do those things. But, but to say it's not what you believe, it's how you live, is a worldview that rips out the soul of humanity. Actually, if you live that kind of life, it's not what you believe, but it's how you live, which some of you, you're, you're in the midst of. You believe that. You're here, and you're like, what? What's wrong with that? I don't like that you're, you're saying, what? what do you mean? If you live that way, it's like clipping the wings off of a bird, it's like ripping the gills out of a fish. It's like taking the engine out of a car. You see, Jesus says that Christians are those that believe my words, that have a certain relationship to the truth of who I am. Jesus never said Christians are those that do this. He never said Christians are those that live, you know, without making mistakes. He never says that. 
But when you have a certain relationship to the truth that is Jesus, it actually, it changes how you see the world and how you go out in the world. Because truth can never be separated from justice. And you see, I, I'm going to come to justice in a moment, but, but you, you have to start with this place that as a church, as a community of believers, defined by the reality of who Jesus is, we have to start from this grounded place that God has invited us into a relationship with him through Jesus. And in Ephesians 1, it says this, I pray every day for you that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened, that you may grasp the hope of your calling and the riches of your inheritance and the great power in who you believe. You see, when we learn to be with Christ, it is out of that relationship that the doing flows out. You see, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. You see, to have a relationship with Jesus is to have a relationship with the truth that flows in and out of you. And as I said a moment ago, truth and justice, they can't be separated. But what's justice? I mean, what a complicated word. Uh, right now on Amazon, if you go to uh, books and you go to the ethics section, the number one bestseller, which also happens to be a New York Times bestseller, a book that came out in 2009, is written by a Harvard professor by the name of Michael Sendell, and the book is titled Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? You see, one of the ends of the church is the promotion of social justice. It's written down as social righteousness, but it means social justice. And what this Harvard professor who taught this famous class on justice writes, he says, everybody wants justice. The problem is, is that we all have different definitions of justice. Every political party has a different definition of justice. Judges have different definitions of justice. People have different definitions of justice. And so we're bumping into one another, trying to get justice, and other people are saying, that's the most unjust thing you could have done, trying to get justice. And he talks about the complications of it and how there's kind of these three kind of broad ways that people kind of identify, this is how justice happens. Now here's what's fascinating. If you study scripture, the, the Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat. Let me hear you say mishpat. And that word is so broad, so robust, that actually that word for justice includes Michael Sandel's three definitions for justice. So Michael Sandel is saying that it's, it's extremely complicated because people will approach it one way. And what the Bible is saying, God says, I approach it always. And I'm calling you to be my people as a church to approach it in all of these ways. And the three ways are this. First, a social and racial equality. And some of you are like, yes, yes, that's what justice is. It's about equality. Now, some of you are like, no, 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 no. It's not equality. Equality is not the same as equitability. It's not that. Well, hang for a second because Scripture says it can't be less than this, but it's more than this. You see in Scripture in Leviticus 19.33, perhaps you'll write this down, it says this, treat the immigrant in your midst like family. Love them like you'd love yourself. In the ancient world, there is no recorded law, no recorded set of beliefs, 
that is like this. In the ancient world, it was very tribally focused, very much about protecting yourself, protecting the family. There is this command from God, treat the foreigner, treat the immigrant like family. And when you look out on the news, and you see that this is a hot topic in our country, what is God's command to you? Treat them like family. Treat them how you'd want to be treated. That there has to be this this equality that transcends any division, any class, any level of socioeconomic status, any, any set of race, any, any gender, whatever it might be, it, it has to be equitable, and it has to be equal across the board. But it's, but it's more than that. This idea of justice in Scripture, Mishpat, it goes on to say that there has to be, this is second, a special attention given to those that are vulnerable. Now, some of you are like, yes, yes, that's it. That's what I believe. We actually have to give more resources and more energy and more focus to the oppressed. And, and I'm just going to go there. You know, we came out of a year last year where I heard some people saying black lives matter and some people saying all lives matter. From God's point of view, yes, all lives matter. But the power that happens when you say black lives matter is a power that God says you have to use because you are giving special attention to people who have experienced oppression, people who have experienced being on the margins. And what Scripture says is that you actually, you have to give more energy, more voice to, more resources to whoever it is within your culture, whoever it is that is experiencing oppression, whoever it is that is experiencing poverty, whoever is experiencing less than others, you have to give them more resources, more energy. Here's an example, Zechariah 7, it says, do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. In every other belief system in the ancient world, God identified with those in power. God identified with the kings. He identified with the rulers. And therefore, in the ancient world, you didn't mess with the kings, you didn't mess with the rulers. Because if you did so, you were messing with God. And there was these societal structures. We see it in the caste system in India. But what does God do? God identifies more with the poor, more with the oppressed, more with those that are suffering. And to be a just church that is for social justice, we actually have to be a church that gives more resources and more of a voice and lift up more those that have been pressed down, those that have been overlooked. You see, it's not about just giving everybody equally more, making the rich richer and the poor less poor. Scripture says that we actually have to give special attention to those that the rest of the world pushes to the margins. But it's more than that. Michael Sandel says that social structures need to be transformed. And Scripture says, yes, it's that too. And Isaiah 58.6, it says this, that we need to loose the bonds of injustice to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, that there's systems and there's structures, and it's so complicated governmentally, socioeconomically, 
education system, that the things that you don't have any choice on, where you were born, what you have kind of lived into, give you 95% of the trajectory of what you're going to experience the rest of your life. Many of you, you've been blessed with being born in the United States or the fact that you live in the United States. And even within that, in different parts of this city, there, there, there are things and structures and systems that are, that are oppressing you and other people, and you aren't even aware of it. Some of you, you're a part of it. And God says that there is a justice that comes when the oppressed are set free, when we can actually break the yoke of some of these systems. And this, this all-encompassing word, this mishpat word, says that it's more than just social and racial equality. It's more than just giving special attention to the oppressed. And it's more than just social systems being transformed. It's, it's all of it together. But here's the amazing thing, is that God doesn't just from afar say, you know, do those things. God takes the next step, and he begins to identify with the poor. He says that when you give to the poor, you give to me. When you oppress the poor, you oppress me. In Matthew 25, Jesus says he separates two different types of people, the sheep and the goats. You want to be a sheep, by the way, in this metaphor, this illustration. Uh, he says, you know, the difference is uh, there were people that were hungry, and some of you fed them, and some of you didn't. There were people that were thirsty, and some of you gave them water, and some of you didn't. There were some people that were naked, and some of you clothed them, and some of you didn't. Some people were experiencing homelessness, and some of you brought them in, and some of you didn't. And, and, and there were prisoners, and some of you visited them in prison, and some of you didn't. Oh, but he doesn't say that. He says, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was naked, when I was homeless, when I was in prison, you either did or didn't respond. And they're like, well, what, Jesus, when, when were you hungry? And when were you, thir when, were you what, when did that happen? And Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters, you've done to me. Now, there's two truths here. The first is this. Every single one of you is hungry. Every single one of you is thirsty. Every single one of you is naked. Every single one of you is experiencing homelessness. Every single one of you is imprisoned, myself included. That is the plight of the human condition. And Jesus says, on one hand, that you will forever be hungry until you find your satisfaction in Jesus. You will forever be imprisoned until you find your freedom in Jesus. You'll, ever, you'll forever be thirsty and find, until you meet the living water that is Jesus. You'll forever be homeless until you find your home in Christ. So some of you, you come here and you self-identify and you say, I am hungry, I am poor, I am oppressed, I am marginalized. I've got good news for you. The, the truth that is Jesus is dying to have... Let me He's died for you. He's not just dying to have a relationship with you. He has died to have a relationship with you. To give you a home, to give you a purpose, to bring you in, to be part of family. That's the first truth. Here's the second truth. 
God is saying, church, wake up. You can serve Jesus by coming alongside not only your brothers and sisters who are oppressed, who are broken, who are hungry, who are experiencing homelessness, which some in our church family do and some are, but you'll never know it if you are just a casual worship attender. You'll never be able to do that if you just show up and you look at the back of people's heads. It can only happen in community. And one of the first steps for community is come to some of these grow workshops. Then take a deeper step and join a small group. Take a deeper step and begin to serve. You see, God is calling you to know and be known by each other. But it's even more than that. God says that I want justice in this world. That is my mission, and I have a church to accomplish it. So as the Father has sent me to identify with the poor, the broken, the oppressed, so I am sending you out into a broken and a hurting world. You see, you have a choice in life. You have so many choices, so many choices. Some choices are based on preference. Some choices are based on a responsibility. When God says, take care of orphans, set the oppressed free, come alongside those caught in homelessness, that is not a preference that you can choose. That is a responsibility that God is saying. If you want to have a relationship with me, this is what the overflow looks like. But let me take a step back again. You know, I could keep pressing my thumb on the guilt, as some do. I'm not going to do that. I could try to appeal to your duty to do these things. I'm not going to do that. You see, duty isn't a good motivator. But beauty is. Let me explain. Uh, my freshman year of college, I had to take a music appreciation class. I did not want to take this class. Uh, and I had to take it in order to graduate, to get my degree, to make some money, okay? Uh, I, I took this class out of duty, and I, and I referenced Bach, uh, you know, in the 830 service, and we learned a lot of different types of music, and that's when I first encountered Miles Davis. Any Miles Davis fans here? So in the same way with Bach, you know, at first it was a duty to listen to Bach, a duty to listen to to Miles Davis, and it was just a means to an end. The end was to graduate and to make money. Now, here's the great irony of that experience. I began, I began to love Miles Davis, and it began to shift away from duty, and actually, Miles Davis and his music began to become beautiful. And now, what do I do? It's an end to itself. I spend money just to get Miles Davis. I spend money to get new albums, to get new vinyl. I, I keep searching, and now it's this beautiful thing, and there's people that have defined socio, uh, sociologists that say that it's beauty that will actually, that's the thing that moves our heart in a different direction. It's, it's our drawnness to something beautiful that's bigger than ourselves that we get caught up in. That's actually what will change us. And let me give you a picture of something that's beautiful in relation to this. Picture Jesus, who was born into the Roman Empire as a minority, who walked this earth, but before that was born in a stable, who came into this world poor, 
who actually went into exile was, a, do you know, do you have any idea that God who came in the flesh of Jesus was a refugee for many years of his early life? That was hunted? That was oppressed? That as part of a, a minority group was ostracized, marginalized in so many different ways? This is, this is your God, my God, our God that we worship. That our God was a God that knows poverty intimately, that knows oppression intimately, that knows the experience of homelessness intimately. Picture Jesus, who the last week of his earthly existence slept in a borrowed bed. It says that when Jesus went to the cross, he only had one possession. One possession. Think about all your possessions. He had one possession, his cloak. That's it. And even that was taken from him and they divided up his one possession by casting lots. That he went to the cross naked. That he died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. This is our God. And when I consider that, when I consider that there is only one God that's ever been described that takes on the experience of injustice, that there's only one God that takes on the experience of homelessness, that there's only one God that takes on the experience of what it's like to be in the minority, to be oppressed, to be imprisoned, to be ostracized by choice. And why did he do that? It's the great reversal of humanity. The one who didn't deserve it says, I'll take it. So I can give it to all of you. Though you don't deserve it, receive it. But now that you've received it, be my hands and my feet. Be the embodiment of me in a broken and hurting world. Go out into this world and be for the oppressed before social and racial equality, before the transformation of these societal systems and do it in partnership with others locally and globally. You see, this is what it means for us to be the church. Some of you are rejecting Christianity. Did you have any idea that this was at the heart of it? Now that you've heard this, maybe it'll be a, a second consideration for you. Some of you have accepted, received Jesus. Did you know this was at the heart of it? Maybe some of you are saying, oh, wow, what did I get myself into? Here's what I love. God is a God that says, I want to give you the power. I want to give you the resources. I want to give you the heart and the humility and the courage. You don't have to do this alone. Church, this is what we're for. We are for the revival and renewal of all things. Let's pray. Loving God, as we right now simply just respond in worship before we get our marching orders to what's next, may we simply just sit in this truth that you love us and you don't love us to just stop there, to just set us free, but you want your love and your freedom to flow in and through us to those around us here and everywhere. 
Jesus, may our voices and our hearts together as one simply just respond in this moment before we do anything else. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.